Uh, I'd invite you to open up to Revelation. We're going to start easy. That's in the back of your Bible. I'll throw you a softball first, so uh, start with, with Revelation. You can get there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, I just invite you to use the one sitting in the seat in front of you. Revelation chapter 19. So many in this room have at one point been a bride and um, know what it is for a bride to get ready for her wedding day. Uh, And if you think about that process, uh, guys, we have it pretty easy. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yes. I mean, tuxes can be tricky to figure out. Some of you wore a tux and had to figure out a few things. But uh, brides getting ready for their wedding day. There's there's a time investment here, right? Uh, Prepping for each and every moment of the day. Uh, Brides or soon-to-be brides uh, or brides from the past, let me ask you, does it matter how you look on your wedding day? Yes, Yes, immensely. There is effort and planning into this. There's coming a wedding day for Christians. And the good works are the uh, adornment of the saints. And I want to show you this from, from Revelation chapter 19. Our good works as Christians is really like us prepping for our wedding day. Unless you just gloss over this, I want you to think of a real bride. Maybe you know some people who are planning on getting married soon, and already the whirlwind of effort that is going into that moment. And I want you to translate that to the good works of the saints prepping for uh, their wedding day. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 says this. It says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that would be the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, there are many righteous deeds of the saints throughout the centuries and talked about in Scripture, but we are highlighting an area that the Bible makes absolutely prominent. Orphan care is not just a concern of God, it's a priority of God. At NBC, we like to use the word share a lot, and share has to do with um, those of us who've been transformed by God with a changed life, not just rescued or saved, but adopted into his family, and the outflow of our lives as Christians, sharing the gospel, sharing our lives, sharing our stuff, sharing our time. Um, In thinking through uh, adoption and children, uh, you'll notice that Ben and I both are matching this week. I told my kids that... uh, there was going to be at least one other person that was going to match me identically on what we wore. And, uh, and my daughter turned to me and said, I found him. Uh, it was the guy who's 6'9 on stage. But she said, but you don't have the same hair. And I said, amen to that. Um, <clears throat> some have called parenting the toughest job you'll ever love. And if you think about parenting, parenting is modeling God to the next generation. Parents like it or not, we image forth God to our children. 
And that's a really huge responsibility. It's also a really huge privilege. I want to direct our attention, and this is really what this month has been about, about those who've lost their fathers, about fathers and mothers who've, who've lost their kids for whatever reason. When you read the word fatherless in the Bible, I want you to think of the word orphan. Those without the love, support, nurture, protection of a family. No umbrella, if you will, left exposed to many things in this world. God has called Christians not just to care um, about them, but for them. And the question we're asking as a church this week is this, what is my part? You're not called to play every role on the team, but you have a role in this if you are a Christian. Now, we've been talking about somewhat, some of the crisis of orphans worldwide and at home. There are some who've abandoned children to the state. We call that foster care. I want to caution you really quickly because I think there's a tendency to go to one of two extremes. It's easy to either demonize people who have, who have turned their child over to the state and immediately think, how could you? And it's also easy to romanticize people who are in that place and kind of hold them up to high esteem. And what I want to do is this. I want to, I want to share with you a couple of thoughts, not to, not to demonize nor romanticize. Perhaps an hour in their shoes might change your mind of what's really going on. There's a girl recently, a teenage girl, who uh, chose to give her child up for adoption. And the child was adopted. And um, I look at this girl, and I really celebrate her choice. She had a choice, didn't she? Abortion is readily uh, accessible in this country. It's easy. In fact, it's socially acceptable by many, many people around this country. It's completely legal. And she had a choice, and she spared her child's life, had the child, and the child is now in a loving home. Side note, there's about 500,000 kids right now in the United States who are living in the foster care system. I wonder sometimes if abortion weren't so readily available, so inexpensive, so propagandized, if that's a word, um, to be acceptable, how many more thousands, if not millions, of orphans would be in our country? Just a thought. Some are struggling to make it in our community and around the world. They're trying hard to do the right thing. They're trying to stay together. They're working their tails off to not be a burden to others. They're providing for siblings when all of a sudden a surprise comes along and they realize we cannot support this child. Many in third world countries simply cannot feed another mouth. Some who have already taken on uh, other nieces and nephews perhaps. And so they turn their child over legally or oftentimes illegally. It's illegal to go leave an orphan at an orphanage, but that's what they do because they know that that will at least keep the child alive. I also meet many people who make an absolute mockery of the help that is being offered to them. They have no intent to change. There's no motivation to change, and there's no accountability to change. They are just sucking things off of the system having children and giving them up to foster care. So that's why I say, I don't know what media outlets you listen to or read or think about, but, but don't demonize these people. Maybe an hour in their shoes would change your mind, but don't romanticize it either. It takes wisdom and personal care. It takes time. It takes real investment to figure out what the right way is 
to help these families that are no longer intact, these kids who have, who have lost one or both parents. And frankly, the kind of time and the kind of investment that's required isn't accomplished by a government system. Last week, we talked about this idea of no unwanted babies. What if it was absolutely clear in our culture's mind that there were no unwanted babies? Because we know, if nothing else, that churches would take any unwanted baby and they would take them in. What if that became the absolute norm? I think it's a dream worth fighting for. We talked a couple of weeks ago about changing our view of the word adopted. That Adopted means wanted. It's not something to be shamed, but something uh, to be celebrated. This week, I want to lead you this way. That a nanny will never be a mommy. There are orphanages and foster care around the world, and that's good, but not good enough. I want to ask you a question. So um, let's just say that this is the world's population here in our, in our room, and uh, I'm going to pick on these three in the front row. Let's say that these three in the front row had the means to go on a luxurious cruise, and they were on that cruise, um, when all of a sudden it gets, gets worse, trust me. Uh, I mean, really... Really, eat, drink, and be merry for the next two seconds because it gets bad. And all of a sudden, that cruise becomes, uh, that cruise ship becomes disabled. And so the Coast Guard comes along and they find this, this cruise ship and they, they hold a, a press conference for the rest of the country and the rest of the world and said, we found this cruise ship um, and it's been disabled. It's floating out in the middle of the ocean. Everyone's fine. They're all safe. And the way that we've decided to handle it is um, we, are going to, we are going to bring them, we're, we're going to ship out to them plenty of water, plenty of food, and, and they'll be just fine. And this is how we're going to handle the situation uh, for the rest of their lives. We would all look at that as insane, right? And the proponents of this idea would say, look, they're in no threat of drowning. I mean, the boat is still afloat. Their lives aren't in danger. Good night, they're on a cruise ship. And we would look at that and say, unacceptable. If your family member was on that cruise ship, you wouldn't stop until that decision was reversed and something changed. That would be good, better than some alternatives, but not good enough. That's just like orphanages. That's the picture of orphanages. They're good, but they'll never be good enough. And here's my question, church. Where is our holy discontent for orphanages? Where is it? I'm prayerfully stirring up this month that we would have a discontent for people growing up, living their lives on a cruise ship, and because they're not drowning, because they have plenty of food and water, we think that that's okay. This is not God's design. God has made provision for orphans. Did you know that? They're called Christians. They're called disciples of Jesus Christ. Some critics would dismiss what we're doing this month as social justice that has no place in the church. We ought to just stick to the Bible and preach the gospel. I couldn't disagree more. What we're doing here in church this morning is social justice in some ways. But to slap that label on it as if it has nothing to do with Christianity is to miss a whole chunk of the Bible and the gospel for that matter. I have met some nannies in my day, not a ton, 
But here are some from Ethiopia that I snapped a picture of. My wife and I had the opportunity to thank the women who God placed in their life to care for our children until God could allow us to find them and bring them home. It's pretty powerful to thank these women who are giving their life um, to care for children. And the handful that we've met were very gracious, beautiful women that were, that were loving children. And we're really, really grateful for that. So when I say that nanny will never be mommy, this isn't disparaging anyone in that uh, line of work. I'm thankful for them. One of my favorite pictures of the whole process for us in Ethiopia is this one. You have some little ones who are confused and a little bit scared, and you have future parents of these children who are elated. And if you kind of see the dissonance there, you, you say, well, why, why is there this dissonance? It's because the parents could see what was to come. The parents understood what was in the works at this moment. Adoption is a legal change of status. It's powerful. It's irrevocable. I knew that they would be leaving this place soon, and the only way they would return to this place is if they chose to come back. And they would come back not to stay, not to be cared for by a rotating group of workers, but, but they would come back as beloved sons and daughters who are part of a forever family. That's why Becky and I are smiling. We talked last week, and I'm not going to recover it, so please go back and listen to it. This is really a continuation of this whole month. But last week, I talked all about how this overlays to every Christian story that we're adopted. And that God pulls us out of the orphanage of the world, and there's a smile on his face, and there's fear and trembling when we come and make that change and are born again. But that's because he knows what's to come. He knows what it means to be in his family. Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote this song, All I Really Want for Christmas. And the tag, the bridge says this, is someone who will be there to sing me happy birthday for the next 100 years. Nannies can sing happy birthday, but they won't be the same person singing for 100 years long. God created us as Christians for good works. God has shown us needs. Some of you might be bummed that you've been coming this month because now you can't say, I just didn't know. I don't want you to feel guilty for just not knowing. Many, many, many people walk through life not understanding, not knowing. We're not held accountable for what we don't know. But isn't God showing us something? Isn't God painting a picture of real, tangible needs around the world? He's provided the knowledge. He's provided the means to do them. He's even commanded us to do them. What's left? Obedience. Simple action. What if you came to work on Monday? Some of you have Monday off. My wife was speaking with one of my daughters about why she has no school on Monday. And she said, do you know what day it is? And uh, she said, hmm, she kind of thought about it for a moment. She said, I think it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John Day. <laughs> My wife thought about it for a moment. She goes, close, Martin Luther King Jr. That's kind of, in a pastor's home, it's Mar Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Day. It's, it's pretty close. So we've got a little work to do on that. But let's pretend that you had work on Monday and you found someone else at your desk. This person is answering the phone, scheduling meetings, spending the budget. How would you feel about that? 
it would kind of depend on what you think about your job, right? Some of you are like, woohoo, finally you have it. Take it, please. But if you liked your job, if you enjoy your paycheck, if you feel called to what you do at your job, you might respond a little bit differently than that. What would you do about it? In our land, the state is most known for caring for kids. It's called foster care. And around the world, they're called orphanages. The state is doing the job of Christians. Now, I really do believe that governments are set up for the benefit of the people, and so there is a role that the government plays in this. But it is not primarily the government's role to be doing this. Imagine for a moment if we absolutely got after the clear mandate, all Christians around the world, to care for the fatherless. It really starts with choosing to see. Isn't it easy to get super overwhelmed by this? Someone said once that one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. The person that said that was Joseph Stalin, one of the most evil men in history who used that to create atrocities around the world. Systems don't see one person. People do. That's why I said that governments and systems won't be good at solving this. People are. I talk to a lot of pastors. I'm friends with a lot of pastors. And um, pastors, pastors want some things. I made a list of some things I hear quite a bit. One is that they would love if every single person in their church were really actively involved in discipleship and evangelism. They pray for and work for and long for everyone in their church, every member to be pursuing Christ in holiness, growing in Christ-likeness. And one of the things I hear often, we live in a pretty diverse area of the country, not just ethnically, but, but in, in many other ways as well, is they, they say, wouldn't it be God-honoring if there was just an eclectic group of people that it made no sense of why they were together as family unless Christ were in their midst? Diversity. Here's my question. Could it be that if the church got busy reclaiming their job as the primary and best form of orphan care, that these wishes would be filled as a byproduct? I want you to dream with me just for a second. What if adoption was so normal that it was happening in spades, not just in a church or two or in an individual or two, but across the Christian church spectrum? Wouldn't that engage people in daily and passionately forming disciples and evangelizing people? Isn't that part of what parenting is? Raising a child up in the fear and instruction of the Lord is to be daily engaged in discipleship. That's evangelizing over the long haul. It's great commission work. What grows us and forms Christ in us more than the faith, stamina, and energy needed to be a parent? Can I get an amen on that? I mean, that is forming us into Christ. Didn't you learn a ton about your selfishness when you had a little baby screaming his or her head off in the middle of the night? Didn't you learn, haven't you continued to learn things about your own self? As your child has grown up, haven't you seen them reflect back characteristics that you go, oh, that's an ugly characteristic, and then realize they're only mirroring back you? Aren't we growing in Christ-likeness as we parent? Aren't we growing in our need for Christ as we parent? Of course we are. And couldn't our utter disregard for fleshly dividing lines draw attention to what is most real and most precious in the sight of God? 
When the disfigured and the beauty queen, the stammering and the eloquent, the white chocolate and the dark chocolate skinned, all find a seat at the same table, all sing songs to the same good father, people will marvel at that. They'll wonder what is going on in this place. So not as a means of trying to stir up diversity, but as a means of simple obedience, I believe that every Christian can be actively involved in discipleship and evangelism. I'm not saying this is the only way. I think they can be actively involved in Christ-likeness. doesn't mean every single person should adopt or foster care. However, if we all have a, pl- a part and we're playing that, we could jump in on that. And I think that a byproduct would be a, greater, a much greater amount of diversity. Not everyone just tailor-made to liking this brand of music or that speaker or the decor in this place or that. Adoption is the part that some will play. And I used to not want to push my calling on other people, but I've gotten more and more bold and courageous with it because I realize this. It's not my calling. This is God. So if you're mad at me, get mad at God. We walked through a lot of scriptures last week. I'm not going to rehash that once again, but this is a prominent priority in the scriptures. I want to shift gears a tiny bit and let you inside some of the reality of of adoption so that you can get a picture of it, Uh, either because you're possibly being led down that road or because you're going to be supporting people who are in this path. One question that you have that's very real and very viable and I think is an important question to ask is this, will I be able to love that adopted child as my own, quote unquote? Will I be their real family? What if I have biological children and adopted children? How's that going to work? That sounds complicated. Let me tell you, it's not rocket science, but it can be complicated. No one should be ashamed of their adoption, either spiritually or physically. But hear this. It is not the most important part about a person. If you adopt, I want you to be prepared. There's, there's sort of this invisible sign that you take on um, that says this. It says, please ask me about the most intimate details of my child's life at any time. That's just kind of a sign that you put on. Pregnant women, you can identify with this, Right? I mean, strangers come up and they go, may I? Uh, no, that's my stomach. Thank you very much. You know, how far along are you? What's your vomit cycle like? You know, and you're going, are you dilated? Why are you asking me this? Is there a, you know, why should you be knowing this information? There's something of that that comes along with, with adoption. And, and uh, frankly, my wife and I are, uh, are, for the most part, very gracious about that because we're pro-adoption and we're excited what God has done. Um, we don't really hide our adoptions well. We're like a parade of nations wherever we go. And so they think we're training for the Junior Olympics or they wonder what's happening, a daycare of some sort. Um, and so we, we graciously answer many questions, but we also guard the fact that these are our children and, and we don't need to give out their intimate details at all points. So there's, there's an art to answering some of the questions that will uh, come about. The most basic one is, are they adopted? And that question gets answered. um, But really, how they joined their family is kind of like a grain of sand in importance to the fact that they are a part of our family. Let me explain. I wonder if every single time that you introduced your kids and you said, here's so-and-so, here's so-and-so, and this is little Jimmy. He's our preemie. And every single time you ever talked about him, you said, yep, He came early, spent a couple weeks in the NICU, 
He didn't cook all the way. That's Jimmy. If every single time you ever talk about Jimmy, wouldn't Jimmy begin to get a sense that I'm different and the most important thing about me is that I was a preemie? Here's Susan, and she's our C-section baby. Yep, she's the unique one. She's different. Mom, can you give it a rest? Like, that's not really the most important thing about me is how I join this family. The most important thing is I'm your daughter, is that I'm your son. And so it is with adoption. And, and one of the things that we would graciously try to communicate is that the way that God has brought kids into our family has been different and, frankly, been from different locations. But you know what? Adopted is kind of a past tense thing even. We're not ashamed of adoption in any way, shape, or form. But the most important thing is that they're sons or daughters. And honestly, um, I know it's hard to believe because they look a little different, but you almost just forget very quickly who's adopted who's not because they're your kids. And sometimes people find that hard to believe. Our identity gets wrapped up in the wrong things. The New Testament constantly reminds us not to regard one another um, uh, or our relationship to God according to the flesh. This was what Galatians was all about, working our way to God. Look at all these things I'm doing, God. Or seeing one another in this kind of a way. Um, I'm a Jew. I'm of Apollos. I studied under so-and-so. Who cares? That's not the most important thing about you. The most important thing uh, about us as Christians is not who we were or where we were, but who we are right now. It's not how God brought us to the family. The most important thing is that we are in God's family. So it is with adoption. Forever sons and daughters is the identity that they wear and that we wear as Christians. I don't want to Brady Bunch this for you, which means to um, you know, kind of idealize it and, and bl- blank over some things. Uh, Brady Bunch had a blended family, and everyone smiled most times. Things got wrapped up pretty neatly by the end of the show. Um, there apparently was no work going on ever, even by the maid Alice. Um, and so we kind of look at that and go, well, that's how it's going to be if we just blend people who don't share DNA into a family. Uh, many in this room have step families and blended families and all kinds of mix and components to that. We know that that's not true. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and uh, we're just going to land on this passage this morning. Um, there's a really clear prescribed way that people become Christians. It's the preaching of the gospel. The gospel has power. Faith comes by hearing. So it's unquestioned that to preach the gospel is God's plan of evangelism. Um, but it's not the only thing that's been commanded of us. What I want to show you is uh, something in 2 Corinthians, but while you're turning there, just listen to Matthew 5. This is Jesus talking. He says this, You, Christian, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to to God, the Father who is in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so, when they, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Church, let me ask you a question. Could it be that we've talked so long and loud in this culture over and over, talk, 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 that maybe it's time to show. Now, here's what's great about doing Orphan Care Month at NBC. This is not a, come on, people, let's do something. 
This is a church that in its entire existence for the last eight years has been incredibly active. I'll tell you what Orphan Care Month this month has meant for me. It's been, Lord, just I just want to stoke the fire and show off some of the things that you're already accomplishing in our ministry and invite more people into that. That's all this is. This isn't a let's get this off the ground, let's actually start to care. We have a very caring, very, very active participating church in this. But I believe there's more that can be done and more to be invited into. Actions speak louder than what? If that's true, what kind of sermon would it be if many, many people would sacrificially and generously give? Not just a few, but a whole church. Not just one church, but many churches united in this. Wouldn't that be quite a sermon for our culture to see? Now, the passage we're about to read uh, has a context of money. And here's the basic teaching of it. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Those are farming terms, which if you're like me, I have no idea what that means. Whoever plants sparingly will reap a sparse harvest, is what it's saying. Whoever plants generously is going to reap a bountiful harvest. So although it's talking about money, and money certainly needed for adoptions, for orphans, for foster care, to better the lives, to even keep people afloat and not from dying, isn't it costly in other ways too? So couldn't this giving principle expand beyond that? It's been said this, my friends, adoption is redemption. It's costly, exhausting, expensive, and outrageous. Buying back lives costs so much. When God did it, redeemed us, that is, it killed him. That's our model. So with this good work in mind and that it will be costly, listen to the way that God doesn't skimp on equipping us to be generous. Here it is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 7. It says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures Forever, he supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for generous, uh, to, to, to be generous in every way. I'm sorry, seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they, the watching world, will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. God's calling us to be sacrificially generous, And he's saying that he's going to supply even the gumption to get up and do this. Thursday, I painted a little picture. I had a little bit of extra time. And um, so this is the result of it. I thought I'd get a chuckle or two. (laughs) You guys think way too much of me. 
it's, it's really not fair to say that I painted this picture, um, but I did have a part in it. Um, I was at a conference, and they asked for contributions from something that you had on your person that was a little bit personal uh, that you'd be willing to give up as part of an art project. So on that painting is a little gray Dunlop guitar pick that I happen to have in my backpack. Um, so I had a part in painting that picture. It's a stretch to say that I painted the picture, okay? But as I sat there and watched this guy paint and thought about what we're talking about here today, this guy, this artist, the guy in the black shirt being interviewed, this artist took our stuff and he created something really beautiful with it. And I began to think about the fact that when all of us contribute our something the artist is able to paint something really beautiful. When all of us, church, give our guitar pick, that's all you have is a guitar pick? Great, offer it up. There's an artist named God who's able to take that and weave things, and we've seen this in our life in many, many other kinds of ways. Here it would be in orphan care as well. So here's my question for you. What's your part in loving orphans? 1999, my wife and I, uh, our family, decided to begin sponsoring children through World Vision. It was something that... um, it's a tangible way to reach out and fight poverty uh, from the comfort of your own home. Uh, in 2011, uh, we as elders decided to rope our church family into this. And God did something really amazing in this room. We were at one service at the time. The World Vision people told us, plan on 10% of your regular attendance um, to sponsor children. I said, we're a pretty spectacular church. I had massive faith, so I bumped up this goal to 25 um, and in the course of one song, um, 44 kids, every kid we had there was sponsored um, by, by our church. So many in this room and in next service have been faithfully supporting children since 2011. Um, I tell that story because of this. We are doing another push for World Vision. We haven't done one really strongly since 2011. This is not for those of you who already sponsor. Keep being faithful to that child. What's great about this program is we got to all sponsor from a, uh, a very close-knit area called the Gawata Township in Ethiopia. So we're all sponsoring kids from this one area. Um, and uh, in 2012, when we were doing one of our trips, I invited myself over to World Vision headquarters uh, unannounced, and I asked if I could meet with someone. And I acted important. They thought I was. They let me meet with the director. So he took me around for a tour of World Vision. I got to meet the people. These are people in the mail room, um, and our little Gawata box is sitting right there. And I got, they stopped what they were doing. They were so incredibly grateful for, of all the nations in the world, they said, far and away, we would not exist. None of this operation would exist without the help of the U.S. They called us out by name, and it, was, it wasn't due to the fact that I was an American. Uh, they showed me some, some facts to that. So I want you to know that this is an organization that has real people working on the other end. Go to World Vision site. Actually, every dollar you give, even though there's some overhead cost, turns into a dollar and 15 cents towards bettering people's lives in, in various parts of the world due to government grants and matches and that kind of a thing. When love takes you in and says, you belong here. Um, whether you ever adopt or not, whether this is on your heartstrings or not at all, this is the story of every Christian. Father, thank you for this morning. And again, it's been a difficult morning in some ways, God, but we're also so thankful that you love us and we're reminded of our adoption story and we're not afraid and fearful of hard realities, of hard truths. And 
We know that you're walking with us in these things. I pray specifically for Penny and for the Deanies this morning. Thank you for their heart to share. I pray your blessing on them, God. And uh, for all those who are, who are gathered here this morning, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.